Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nominal Interest, where tonight we are doing our budget special edition. Tonight I am joined by... Hey guys, I'm Katie. Hey everyone, uh, I'm Michael. And I'm Yael. And I'm Sam. Welcome, one and all, as we, t- as we talk through what you need to know about, about tonight's budget. But before that, we're just going to do a quick roundup of the recent news. So, as you probably know, Emmanuel Macron won the French, French election on the weekend, recording a thumping victory over far-right far Front National candidate Marine Le Pen. And in other news, Donald Trump fired his FBI director, uh, which is certainly um, set to kick off a bit of a storm in the days in the days ahead. But but closer to home, as you know, there was a there was a budget, and it was as Scott Morrison said, it was a budget for all Australians. It was promising uh, security, opportunity, and just about every other buzzword under under the sun. So what we're going to do tonight is talk through what you as students need to know about the issues that matter. So we're just going to start by talking about the most the most important issue by far to students, which is of course education. Now, chances are you've probably seen a fair bit in the news about this because it was it was actually announced last Monday, preempting the budget by several days. Simon Simon Birmingham, our ed, ed, education minister, announced that there will be a, that there will be some changes made to the current funding model. Universities will um will face an uh, it, an efficiency dividend, which is a very, very nice um, euphemism, of $2.8 billion over, over the next four, four years, while uh, students will face a lower threshold for paying back their hex of $42,000, and they'll also be asked to contribute a slightly larger percentage of, um, of the cost of their own e- education. But as the, as the minister was very, very keen to point out, the taxpayer still funds over half of our education. So, bear, so bearing all that in mind, I think we'll probably start by just going over how we how we got to this point. Now, as you know, back in 2014, the uh, then Abbott government and Treasurer Joe Hockey, both of whom are names that <laughs> seem quite a, a long time ago, announced they intended to carry out fee deregulation, essentially allowing unis at the undergraduate level to set their own prices for their courses. Um, as you probably know, this met with a lot of opposition within within uh, the public, within parts of the uni- university sector, and particularly from students. Needless to say, say this got um, this got voted down in the Senate and was eventually shelved by the government. And then after that, we've seen a bit of tinkering around the edges, but no real big big reforms. And so tonight, we will get we're going to talk about how now we have reached a point where there actually is some reform going on in the sector. So when you um, guys, when you all saw this announcement come out in the media about a, a week ago, and then confirmed in the budget on Tuesday, what were some of your initial thoughts? Um, I thought that uh, I. Uh, here goes postgraduate degrees here in Melbourne. Um, that wasn't really helped by the uh, by the vice chancellor's email shortly after the announcement, um, which suggested that 
uh, next year there'll be fewer CSP places for postgraduate degrees and the year after that we'll start some sort of voucher system. Yeah, that's right. It was just, it, it wasn't actually mentioned in the Vice-Chancellor's email what exactly this voucher system would look like, aside from the fact that it's, well, a voucher system. Are we to expect some sort of Milton Friedman-esque that's voucher system? That's like- certainly what you would think. Uh, Michael, do you have any thoughts to add on that particular policy idea? Obviously, school choice is a big thing in in American, uh, mostly uh, secondary school education. It's certainly been put into, into practice in other countries. What do you think this would look like on the tertiary level here in in Australia, yeah. So I was, I was honestly, I was quite interested. I won't say excited because that might, that might give the wrong impression about uh, my opinions in this area. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was, I was very interested to see that the government is, uh, you know, dare I say it, um, innovating and being a bit agile in this particular area. So um, we, uh, with the Vice Chancellor Glyn Davis um, sending out an email, I, I'm hesitant to fully. I, I personally am hesitant to fully buy into that. I, I feel like that might be a bit of uh, you know the 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 boy crying wolf. Um, I, I think the university is not exactly poorly off. I think Mr. Davis probably has a pretty nice salary himself. Um, so, so yeah, I'm not I'm not entirely convinced about all the doom and gloom. The voucher system is a very interesting idea, and and that could really like it has the potential to drive a lot more efficiency and innovation at universities, just because they'll now have to much more intensely compete to win students and thereby win government money. Um, for those listening listening along at home that might not necessarily be as familiar with the work of Milton Friedman, <laughs> would you mind just doing a quick explain of what exactly a voucher system looks like in absolutely ed- education? So at the moment, what we've got is uh, I'd say more of a sort of supply side uh, government funding of universities. So the government really um, gives the money directly to universities um, and, and that's, sort of, that's sort of all there is to it, more or less. Uh, whereas a voucher system is more demand side. So the, the government will give out, uh, theoretically, this might not be what ScoMo's actually got planned, but we'll see. Um, but theoretically, the government will give vouchers to students. Um, and so, so they'll basically be giving money directly to students to pay for university, be that um, higher degrees or, or undergraduate degrees maybe one day. Uh, and then students get to pick where they want to spend it. And so universities have to compete to attract those students uh, and so that they can get those vouchers and basically cash them in for, for the government money. Very interesting. Thanks for that. I think that really helps to explain what exactly the voucher system is um, because, yeah, it's something that is, as we've said, is quite well known in American education policy. Not isn't quite as familiar to an Australian audience, but certainly what the Vice-Chancellor's email suggests is that we, we may have to become a lot more familiar with this in the years ahead. Um, yeah, so I suppose, yeah, oh, just to go back to um, our vi- vice chancellor's email for a second, is it fair to say, given that the, Mel- the Melbourne model essentially relies on students completing an undergraduate and then enrolling in postgraduate study, is it fair to say the model might be in a little bit of danger, given that most students might not be as willing to enrol if they don't have a CSP place? Uh, despite the chancellor's, um, vice chancellor's uh, uh, claims that it doesn't in his email. Um, I doubt that that would be the case. Uh, if, if students, even, um, even more privileged students, feel, uh, already feel that that jeopardizes their chance of doing a postgraduate degree, um, and, um, and the Melbourne model relies on, on them doing it. Um, so we might see that 
we are distinctly less qualified than we anticipated being at the end of what we can afford. Um, saying that, we're, we're not currently paying for it quite yet. Um, and that is kind of all in the shadows. Yeah, it is worth mentioning, of course. This is all a very theoretical discussion for now. We'll certainly find out more information over the coming months and years as the full effects of these uh, funding cuts take place. Um, and things may things may um, change depending on the state of the sector, but at the moment, everything is just idle spe- speculation, which is just the, the, the most fun kind of chat, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we still don't know much about the voucher systems that could look like anything. Um, CSP places might be reduced, they might not, um, but that also doesn't necessarily mean that we won't be able to do some of that study on our hex debt. Um, and there's always a chance that any of this gets voted down in the Senate, so no need to panic just yet. That's right. Um, I would like to say, uh, just with the voucher system I th- and the, the whole general move towards um, the students funding more of their degrees, is that we're slowly moving towards a system which is more fend for yourself rather than uh, a, a, as a society being like, this is something that we want to offer to our uh, citizens, um, which I don't know if it's the right direction to go. It just seems to be the way we're going. Yeah, it's very much getting into the area of philosophy of a philosophical debate in terms of the the value of education as a user pays principle or is it more of a right? Obviously that's a um debate that's been playing out in other countries. I'm thinking now of obviously Bernie Sanders electrified many young Americans last year by promising to pay for their college, which is when you think about it, a remarkably simple way of getting getting people to vote vote for you. Um, but it certainly ignited a bit of a um, debate. Um, if we might just move briefly from university education to its direct predecessor, um, obviously Malcolm Turnbull made a lo- made ra- a rather big splash a couple of days back, wheeling out David David um, Gonski, he of the of the uh, Gonski report into schools funding in um, Australia, to announce that Gonski 2.0, Gonski two, Gonski harder, I don't know t- two. Too Gonski, too furious, whatever you want to call it. I saw a lot of jokes on Twitter about that. Either way, Gonski is getting a sequel, and it's you know, it's, and it's going to be even better than Gon- than Gonski apparently. Although as we know, sequels are rarely as good as the original. Either way, the upside of this is that essentially the government is has sort of like snuck into Labor's policy area and taken away one of its biggest uh, applause lines. Really, was this Igibigonski schools uh, ed, uh, equitable schools funding, etc. And now we have a model being touted by the by the Liberal government of more equitable schools funding with less money for pri- for private schools. Controversially, less money for Catholic schools, which I believe is all already met with some opposition from liberal liberal senators um, and towards government schools funding. Now, I suppose if you look at this uh, compared directly to what's going on in the tertiary sector, is it fair to suggest the government might be going down a more equitable path here, given that the kind of people who attend university currently tend to be those from more privileged backgrounds to begin with? Uh, I mean, there's there's the question of whether it's more equitable to be focusing on, for example, primary school and secondary school education as opposed to tertiary education because, as we know, many of the students who are currently attending universities tend to be more well-off. So letting t- university students fend for themselves while providing students with a better primary and secondary education and taking more money away from 
like private schools and everything this could arguably just playing devil's advocate could arguably be more equitable um obviously we'd have to see how this would play out throughout the years um i think in the the argument would be that um it does more to reduce uh the gap in inequality as those who are um, less well often wouldn't have gone to um, university, wouldn't receive tertiary education in the first place, would be able to have a better um, high school education. Exactly. It's much, It's sorry to cut you off for a second mm-hmm. there, L, but obviously it is much harder for somebody from a government school somewhere in the outer suburbs to, uh, to um, gain access to a top uni than it is for somebody who attends a private school and has access to so many more resources, the quality of teachers and everything else that goes along with being able to attend such a school. Yeah, I believe, uh, actually, I'm quite confident that the empirical consensus um, uh, on this sort of topic is that one of the best things you can do um, to get more people going to university, especially those from more disadvantaged backgrounds, is by um, providing them with a better secondary and even primary uh, education. Uh, Having, uh, like, honestly, just having one very good, very motivating teacher in high school has been shown repeatedly to have like a, a significant impact on on tertiary education um even more so um you know extra funding to schools is never a bad thing this could have ramifications that um that extend you know beyond just um uh, students going further into tertiary education um we could have a more um able and skilled youth we can uh do a lot of things in education that until it depends how the money is spent obviously but um um that we uh think of all the time we can uh if this money is spent in specific ways we can tackle domestic violence at very young ages we could um there are many ways in which education at a young age is beneficial for society oh absolutely this cuts across so many different areas there's lots of um is it, yeah I, I think it's very much worth as you say l looking at the intersectionalities at play here as you say there are issues with regard to gender with domestic violence with all all kinds of things especially people who might be recent immigrants who are from traditionally discriminated against ethnic backgrounds pretty much everything seems to add up here to the prospect that presuming that this funding model works as intended of um and as michael says empirically we should probably see some good results in terms of equity I would like to ask the panel um, if they think that the budget is sort of misdirected, though, in the sense that um, some of the funding for this uh, primary and secondary school education has come uh, arguably from tertiary students, um, also from elsewhere, because obviously the numbers don't match. But um, do you think that uh, the it it is the right way for uh, the government, the coalition to approach dealing with the job market and the labor force in the future and the problems that come with automation, which has been a huge focus of their whole um, welfare-focused budget. Um, the, to, to quote the treasurer, he said that the best form of welfare is a job. Um, so in a way, by, uh, by taking away some funding from tertiary education, has the, has the budget kind of failed in the overall approach of skilling the um, skilling the future of workforce well i think um 
I think it's fair to say here that um, all we're talking about at present, at least with regard to tertiary education, is, I mean, obviously there are some funding cuts, and we don't know precisely out of what areas that that will come out of. I suspect that um, given uh, given the um, model that most unis tend to be going towards, most of the cuts will come out of the areas that tend to be less profitable, particularly out of, like, areas within the arts faculty, for instance, because, let's face it, philosophy and classics don't exactly... Um, don't don't might necessarily have the most economic value on paper. A shame. Yes, a true a true shame, I must add. Whereas I, whereas you might tend to see, um, obviously the uh, FBE, for instance, meant uh, continuing its funding, engineering, other areas in which there might be a greater return on on investment. Um, and of course, you can. There is a further debate here, of course, about what is important in education. Is it about making sure that people have access to the jobs of the future? Is it, or is it about allowing them to study whatever they want, regardless of the perceived usefulness of that? That's and that's an entirely different topic. Um, I think, with regard specifically to the idea of uh, innovation, agility, and dealing with um, auto, uh, automation. Um, as you pointed out, I think like obviously those who have a university education are always going to be in a better s- situation. But I think in terms of looking at it from a purely equitable equitable point of view, I think the government has has a real point here because as we've um, pointed, as the treasurer pointed out, and as we've mentioned at the start, there still is a considerable amount of the cost of university education being borne by the taxpayer and not the student. Now, um, there are equity issues, of course, in terms of the reduced um, annual, an, annual wage before one has to start paying paying back hecks. Uh, it may lead um, to more students struggling due to some of the welfare measures in this budget. But if you look at it, if you take just the, the uh, so we say, rebalance in terms of education funding, I think there are some pretty strong equitable measures there. Uh, Katie, do you have anything to add on that topic? Uh, sorry, I thought you, you looked like you had say. something to say. No, no, actually, oh, I always sorry. just look like that. <laughs> no worries. Okay, um, I suppose a broader question that arises out of this is, are tertiary students a bit of an easy, easy target when it comes to finding ways to boost the government's budget bottom line? Uh, I really don't think so. I think the last time we tried, to, the last time we saw cuts being proposed in education back in under the Abbott government, yep. that got shot down very heartily in in the Senate. Um, did we? Do you know? Did we have a? Was there a liberal? There wasn't. There wouldn't have been a liberal majority in the Senate. No, I think point. they had to work with. Oh, let me think. This is a bit of a uh, trivia. Of the past. It's uh, oh, it was when uh, Ricky Ricky Muir was in the Senate. Ricky Muir. Um, yeah, gotcha. There were a couple of. Palm, oh, Glenn, Glenn Lazarus, yeah, yeah, Wang, yeah that whole yeah, okay. gang. Yeah, so like, so we've certainly got you know none too lowercase L liberal leaning can you know um, senators there yep. uh, voting voting down these these education cuts. So I don't think I don't think tertiary students are a singularly easy target. I think there's also you know we see a lot of activism around this area on campus as well. Yep. And there are, of course, always the um, the various teaching unions as well, which tend to have good sway, quite a bit of sway with labour at least, mm-hmm. and tend to be quite vocal as well. So I don't think we're, I don't think tertiary education and students, we, are an easy target, honestly. 
Um, I think maybe there's a lot of rhetoric in, you know, maybe say the, the slightly older middle class that, you know, we're, maybe we're lazy and, and don't do much, <laughs> but not, not a soft target by any means. Yeah, I think that's a fair point, actually, thinking about what we've seen over at, um, on campuses over the past few years. Um, definitely back in 20, 2014, you had uh, incidents like Sophie Mirabella being chased out of a lecture theatre, uh, Christopher Pine um, not receiving a particularly war- warm welcome wherever he went for a while. Um, I guess, suppose, what I'm getting at here, and this um, ties in nicely to our next topic of welfare, is that... Um, there's been, rightly or, or wrongly, criticism uh, mounted by groups like Get Up, for instance, and the Greens, and a few other, and uh, and a few other like parties and organisations uh, on the on the left that um, suggest that it's unfair that corp- corporations are getting a tax cut while uh, tertiary students are being forced to pay more for their ed- ed- education. That uh, welfare is um, facing um, tighter restrictions. Um, what do we think of the VAT? Like looking at it, not just necessarily like the tertiary students' perspective, but that sort of broader um, perspective. Sorry, it's a it's a big topic. Um, I'll give you guys a bit of a moment to think about it. But um, I suppose yeah, I, I suppose what it really goes back to is a bit about um, values. That sort of debate. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly that's something that I've noticed in uh, the rhetoric immediately following the budget, um, as some some um, reminded of uh, some things that the Greens talked about. Richard Di De- Natale's first statement the moment the budget came out was that this budget screws over young people in an interview with the ABC. We're going to get to welfare and housing later, so we can talk about that from a wider perspective, but... Um, is this, do you think, I mean, and based on what you were saying before, Michael, do you think that goes a little bit too far? So, um, the first thing I want to say there is that there's a common misconception, um, that some economic systems, particularly capitalism, but that's a side point, um, are sort of a zero sum game that, that companies only get rich by ripping off other people. And it's, it, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, ideally, you know, we both grow the pie and share it more equally, yep. sort of the, the classic metaphor there. So a budget, you know, a federal budget doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. It can make a surplus or it can make a loss, and that can be good or bad depending on, obviously, where the money's going. It's very easy to, to sort of um, get up in arms when, you know, university is getting a tax um, or is getting a, a cut when mm. companies are getting a tax cut. But, it, you know, if we were to tax companies an awful lot... And then, you know, the, the budget was still short. Um, then, then we're just getting down to prioritizing things because it's like, you know, d- do we cut money from the NDIS to fund university? Do we cut money from university to fund secondary education? Yep. So on and so forth. So it, it's uh, this perpetual series of, of tough trade-offs. And, you know, we don't always get it right. I think this budget's got a lot right. It's also got a bit wrong. Um, to say that it's totally unfair on on young people I think is not true because uh, there are while we might lose out in university um, we have the potential to, to sort of win at least a bit with NDIS funding with Medicare funding um, there's some concessions for first home buyers um, and uh, you know there's there's a big levy on banks as well so companies aren't getting away scot-free here um, so I think it's it's a relatively fair budget I think in the literal sense that I think the the pros and the cons, add up and, and sort of equal each other. But 
allocation is the big question. You know, mm-hmm. what I- exactly what is losing out? Yeah, and, what and we'll be coming back to the uh, bank bank levy later. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, I you know in many ways I agree with you, Michael. But um, I would also like to add that um, while yes, uh, there there is a, like that's true that. Um, you know, it's, the the trade-offs in any budget are very difficult. It's hard to please. It, it's not just hard. It's impossible to please all the parties involved um, because, you know, scarcity. Um, but um, we, um, we, with the idea of reducing inequality and reducing, uh, um, with reducing inequality, I think that uh, taxes, the taxing companies and taxing um it provides much more wealth to deal with here uh, than taxing young people who are yet to produce wealth. Um, and not that this budget necessarily taxes young people in that manner, um, but it it doesn't necessarily provide the bulk of the money which um, uh, this budget looks to uh, spend, um, which is also important to remember because that means that there is only so much the government can take from young people, so they can't have taken that much uh, because they, we don't have that much to give. Um, but, um, you know, I wonder when we will realize that really this is, we, we kind of, we should tax companies because um, may, the, the pie is getting better, bigger, but it's not really distributed equally um, or more equally in any st- at the moment. All right, thank you both for providing those perspectives. We're now going to move on and nicely segue to on to the specific issue of welfare. Obviously, we've touched on this at the beginning of the program and in that particular segment. But now we're going to talk specifically about some of the welfare measures in this budget. Obviously, the one that's probably attracted the most, most attention is the notion that um, there's going to be a uh, randomized um, drug tr- uh, drug testing trials done of uh, welfare recipients, um, which is met with a fair bit of controversy. There are questions over whether this is really something that's um, worth worth pursuing as a matter of public policy, which is meant to be evidence based. And there's also a wider issue here about whether such policies tend to uh, further stigmatise those who are on welfare uh, above and beyond what they might already face in society as a result of being dependent on government. Uh, Yeah, Elle, would you like to just start off by talking about that? Obviously, um, uh, means-based welfare and the testing of is a fairly big, big topic. So I want to start with the uh, drug testing part and just go out from there. Yeah, so... uh the, you know, as you may or may not have read, the government is uh, introducing um, in s- three specific areas a trial-based uh, drug testing scheme, which uh, suggests that those t- um, that receive welfare um, under a specific category uh, will be put to uh, uh, randomized drug testing. Um, uh, if they show uh, usage, then they will receive a cashless card, which uh, restricts their spending that they receive from welfare to uh, food and necessities, I assume. Uh, but uh, basically, I th- I'm pretty sure they can't withdraw money. Um, yeah, that's right. It can only be used for certain things, rather akin to, I suppose, like food stamps in the USA, essentially making sure that rather than as some libertarian mind minor types and more liberal minor types might put it that people ought to be able to make their own decisions. It's fair to say this repre- if this um, 
cashless card trial was to become more commonplace, it represents arguably the government stepping in to control people's lives and how they spend their money, which arguably is contrary to, generally speaking, liberal liberal principles, but that's probably an entirely separate debate altogether. To go back to the um, to the drug testing issue, yeah, oh, um, mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier this is probably something that might lead to further stigmatisation of welfare students. Is that something that you think is uh, currently a problem in Australian society, even before you get to the essential drug testing? Yeah, no, well, I think the very suggestion of this policy suggests that there's a stigmatisation, right. that uh, money given um, to uh, as welfare will be spent on um, only on drug use rather than on essentials. Um, it shows that we don't really see as people, um, as uh, um addicted users as being able to lift themselves out of poverty or to spend wisely, uh, which is unfair. Um, And also, um, on the other hand, it's not necessarily true that this policy will stop them from spending on drug use. Um, And either way, it's questionable whether um, uh, the policy will actually uh, work. Um, But on top of that, the the mere uh, suggest, like, just getting people to come in and do a drug testing, whether it's, you know, you get some hair pulled out, you have to um, uh, give a urine sample. Um, It creates um, a feeling of insecurity rather than uh, protection by the government. I don't necessarily think that such a means-based welfare approach uh, creates the... um, it, it suggests that not everyone deserves welfare, which I don't think is true. Um, it suggests that those that are most in need of welfare might not be able to get it. Um, and it might not be the best way to deal with addiction in Australia. Yeah, this is certainly an issue where it's been described as a solution in need of a problem, that there isn't really any evidence that this is something that needs that needs to be brought in. And obviously, as you say, this has the effect of shaming welfare recipients and which is a bit of, which is obviously quite a problem. Um, now, if we just move on to some of the other parts of the government's wider um, reforms in uh, the area of welfare, particularly, one of the big ticket items in the budget last night was uh, in the the increase in, in the Medicare levy of an extra half a percentage point to help fund the National Disability Insurance Scheme started under the previous Labor government and continued on. Um, now, I suppose the natural thing to look here is, is this another more equitable measure that's being, I mean, is this, I think uh, on budget night, Lee Sales asked us, got asked GOMO if, uh, how, it, how it felt to be the first um, Liberal Treasurer to hand down a Labour budget, um, which is certainly sort of like the zinger of the night, I think, but is it... And is it uh, representative of the fact that this, at least going by previous budgets handed down by Mr. Morrison and Mr. Abbott, sorry, Mr. Morrison and Mr. Hockey, you wouldn't call Mr. Abbott and Mr. Turnbull, um, an example that perhaps this is a kinder, gentler government that, uh, as we've talked about earlier with regard to education, does this signal that the government is moving to more towards a, far, a more equitable way of um, doing things? Um. I think that they certainly want us to think so, um, but also um, it is one of the f- uh, first times that we that we see what right what right wing or li- liberal welfare policy will look like. Um, it's not often that we get a government uh, a liberal government that 
uh, doesn't just try to cut funding. Um, and you, it is more means-based. It is um, um, more meritocratic in its values, uh, which is, um, well, you know, those are liberal values. That shouldn't be surprising mm -hmm. to us. Um, and I guess in many ways it's better than uh, not having any welfare-focused government. Um, I don't know if this quite answers your question, Sam. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I suppose what I'm really getting at here is that it's been consistently shown that Australia, in terms of its welfare system, has one of the most tightly targeted and means-tested welfare um, systems in the world, particularly when you compare to a lot of European countries where a more universal model of welfare applies. And I suppose, given that this is an area in which you're quite passionate and interested in, Yael, what you think of the means, broadly speaking, of having a particularly tightly means-tested welfare system versus that more universal model you see in, say, the Nordic countries? So um, any meritocratic system is, uh, in intuitively, it seems okay, people who deserve um, uh, certain... Uh, I would. Uh, I wouldn't want to say liberties. Um, uh, funds for certain things, or maybe an award, or something like that. Mm -hmm. d uh, receive it because they deserve. They'd have yep. something. They've done something of merit. Um, uh, a means-based uh, approach is kind of similar in the sense that um, it catches those uh, at the very bottom. It provides a very minimum base uh, rather than a high universal standard of living. Um, it is not. Um, it suggests that not everyone should receive it, and um, I don't know about that. Um, sorry, just collecting no, my thoughts. It's all right. um, I think means-based systems require um, that we see some people as undeserving, um, and in the same way that we see that some people have merit, the flip side of that coin is that. Um, some people are losers. They are drains on society. They, it, the whole concept of, um, you know, uh, young people take, you know, taking money from taxpayers, uh, or, um, uh, you know, we we shame drug users because they're a burden on society. Uh, that the, all of that lingo comes through, um, and the values behind that come into means-based welfare. Um, you know, you have to prove that you're in need. You have to prove that you, um, um, and but and the real problem is that the minimum level is usually not enough. So um, you know, you it, it's famously like the famous example is U.S. food stamps, which are just um, you know that you you stop getting them over over not enough to actually have food. Um, so it's kind of the um, and that's luckily not the situation in Australia. We have a much better means-based system yeah. than other places. So, uh, you know, that compar comparison is a bit unfair. And Australia's done a lot of good in terms of, um, you know, Medicare is a very good system that is means-based, and that's important to remember. So it's, they're not all bad. And at this point, it's not necessarily a good approach for Australia to change its tack. Um, but um, a universal system um, has, you know, values which uh, I think are much... And, uh, you know, you, we keep saying that these things are uh, not normative, but they obviously are. And so universal-based system is can be much more... Um, uh, um, can build a much stronger uh, and unified society, yep. but um, it's obviously very expensive, yep. which is the drawback. Um, but it's not... Um, it has a lot of value uh, to uh, society as a whole and could fix a lot of issues that are, um, you know, social-based yep. that we see. 
Okay, uh, Michael, did you have any thoughts to add in uh, response to that before we move on? Uh, only a couple, as, as Yael said. <laughs> um, so I'm going to go out on a limb yep. and say that almost 100% of people support means-based welfare except for people who believe in like literally universal basic incomes. Yep. And the very simple, I suppose the very simple thought experiment there is, would you rather give someone with very little income $200 a week or give them $100 a week and give a millionaire $100 a week as well? So to some extent, I think the vast majority of us support means-based welfare to some extent. Yep. Uh, so then the question just becomes, where do we draw the line? What, you know, how much money do we give to which people in what sort of need? And I think stigmatizing drug use is probably like those people who do have substance abuse problems need support. They don't need punishment. Yep. That said, something, something like this, you know, means-based testing around this is theoretically good so long as it is paired with proper support. So maybe if the government wants to do this, they should also increase funding to... Uh, like rehabilitation schemes, provide these people with support as well as, um, in essence, giving them a carrot and a stick, yep. which doesn't sound particularly nice, but um, is probably more effective than just the carrot, although I don't have any handy statistics for that one. Um, so I think I think we all support means-based testing to some extent. And, and in essence, that's actually a very, a very socialist sort of um, uh, approach to take because it's very, um, you know, from each according to their ability to each according to their need. Um, whereas, you know, versus versus the sort of universal basic income um, is very equal rather than equitable, perhaps. So, yeah, means-based is uh, fundamentally, I think most people agree on it. Um, well, I don't disagree with anything you said. I also don't necessarily agree that uh, universal basic income, income is not equitable um, because I, I don't think it focuses... It does focus on equality, but not in the um in the same in that sense i think it provides it, the the countries that have applied some sort of universal basic income have uh, it's done to a higher standard of living so everyone is guaranteed a certain um level which is not just like a minimum subsistence level it's much higher than that it includes healthcare it includes um education it includes food it includes um and it provides and it pushes forward and those countries are generally have better gender equality. Um, uh, you know, there's less of a gap in, in wages. Um, often these countries have uh, better maternity and paternity leave schemes um, and inequality seems to reduce much more quickly. Um, so I, d I don't necessarily think that th they push to a less equitable outcome than a means-based approach. That saying, I do agree that uh, a means-based approach definitely has its merits and it's definitely an, a, a satisfying approach to welfare. It's not without its merits and um, it can be equitable. Um, the question is, where is that minimum level placed? A, a very in interesting discussion thank you both for talking about that um we're just now going to move on to another topic that is close to all, all of our hearts and that is of course housing aff affordability certainly something that's been in the news a lot lately we're probably all familiar with various articles about how long you're going to have to spend to save up for house in melbourne or sydney it's something that's definitely attracted a lot of political and just generally uh popular attention lately even outside of just the usual political 
political debate, the issue of young people being able to afford house has been a big one. And naturally, we were going to see something along those lines in the budget. And Scott Morrison did indeed not disappoint. So we got an an interesting policy. Um, I suppose, uh, Katie, I, I think you've got some data there about it. Is it to do with, so it's to do with superannuation and a certain amount being able to be saved up specifically for buying a house, yes? So I do believe they're putting a new scheme, which is something like a $30,000 contribution that you can make towards your superannuation savings. Um, I think that this ties in really nicely with all the stuff about universities on one hand you know, they're going to make our degrees a little more expensive. On the other hand, they are trying to help us afterwards when we're trying to look for a house. Obviously, there is a debate around whether this really goes far enough. Obviously, native gearing, for instance, it's a, a common a common bugbear of people who would like to afford a house, something that attracts a lot of criticism. But for now, it appears to be, at least in a policy sense, generally a bit a fairly, what we'd probably call tinkering, but no big ticket items. However, I believe there's also been land, um, some new land is going to be uh, rezoned for residential purposes in Western Sydney. Is that correct? Yes. So on the supply side, I think the um, Morrison's really trying to help young people out here, not just young people, anyone who can't currently afford a house and is just living on a living on rental. Um, on the supply side, I think I do believe they're trying to free up some land. For example, I remember in his speech he mentioned something about land 10 kilometres from the CBD in Melbourne will be freed up um, to create a new suburb. So then we're going to have more land, more housing, obviously rudimentary economics. Yeah, that's right. So supply, decrease my price. apologies, it's actually defence land in Melbourne. It's yeah. in uh, Mabinong, which is going to allow thousands of new homes to be built in Western, in Western Melbourne. Um, now, we've also had the announcement, I think you're just going to get to that before I, I cut you off, Katie, about um, there's what's being called a ghost tax, I yeah, believe. so um, also tackling it on the demand side, of course, there's a lot of resentment towards um, wealthy foreigners who are coming here and buying up a lot of the housing and obviously not living there. So I think it's been colloquially named the ghost tax and I think it's an annual foreign investment levy where they'll levy something like over $5,000 on all future foreign investors who don't who either don't occupy the new home that they buy or lease it out for at least six months of the year. So it's sort of like a punishment for taking up land, taking up housing that young people can't afford and pushing up prices. Yep. So um, there is a debate around how far this goes, as I alluded to before. Um, so with bearing all that in mind, do we have any particularly strong opinions about what the government has chosen chosen to do or rather what they have not chosen to do in the budget with um, regard to housing? Yeah, so obviously we've still got the, um, the, the elephants in the room of negative gearing and, and capital gains tax or lack thereof. Um, and I don't think we're going to see huge resolutions to problems until we deal with those. But that said, I also don't think that those, like slashing those tomorrow is a terrible idea. Yep. That would, Absolutely. you know, it, a lot of people are speculating that we are, a lot of people are now speculating that we are in a bubble. Um, and uh, frankly, pulling the rug out from under investors is that's good, what will cause a crash. So we can't just remove that tomorrow, but even scaling it down, you know, over a number of years, you know, freezing it for all new property sort of thing, even that is probably not going to go far enough. In a like a, a family of four is still never going to be able to afford uh, an inner, inner Sydney house on the river. Um, and that's really just a function of increasingly dense uh, 
urban populations. Demand is, even when we remove this sort of artificial demand caused by these market distortions yep. of, of, you know, levies and, and rebates and whatever else, um, demand is still increasing and city planning is still poor by cities themselves, state governments, and then up to the federal government. So there's a lot of problems that need to be fixed and ScoMo really can't fix all of them. Yeah, it's definitely uh, unfair to lay all of this at um, his door. I think, as you say, Michael, this is something that is a long-term issue that I don't think will be solved without the state and federal and even local, a local government, indeed, coming together to try and work something out. Um, so I suppose this is definitely something that we probably for, we can probably be forgiven for not uh, of rather scomo can probably be forgiven for not having um, done too much for now because of the sheer scale of the problem, as you say. Um, but yeah, did you have any thoughts to add on the housing issues specifically? I think um, it's important to remember that it's not an issue that's just faced by Australia, um, and it's just a, as you were saying, Michael, it's a it's an issue of urbanization and. Um, and we're not really um, dealing with it in the like in all the right ways. But as as the treasurer himself said, um, it, it, there's no silver bullet. It's not a want. It's it. We need a more holistic approach, and we need more things to change simultaneously. And currently, we're building lots of houses still that are quite big, and where we could f- build various uh, several houses for more people, um, and house and house them in it. Um, I think um, some of the um, the government trying to build more houses as well um, might help the issue somewhat, but you know there's always a risk. Uh, you hear about ghost towns in China, so that might be repl- replicated here, although probably less likely. Um, uh, with that, there's also the um, uh, increase to the funding of um, uh, homeless homelessness. Yeah, um, that's right. So there's an extra. I'll just take the figures on this: three hundred seventy-five million dollars being allocated to help tackle homelessness in Australian cities, um, which is certainly something to be welcomed. In, in the same vein, well, this isn't necessarily around housing. There has there is more money being spent to deal with um, issues of mental of care for those with mental illness, those who. Um, those who are victims of family violence and also um, on a more general welfare setting, legal aid um, has also received a boost. Um, in the last few minutes, we're just going to move and talk about a few other more miscellaneous issues that have that have uh, come out of the budget. And we alluded to one, one of these before, and that's the uh, much-vaunted uh, levy on the big, big four banks and uh, Macquarie Bank. Now, there has already been quite a bit of critis- criticism raised, not just by the relevant lobby groups here, but um, there's also been commentary uh, in the media. There was an article on the con- conversation about it. And essentially, the general criticism here is that this is a cheap attempt at at populism that is just going to lead to the banks passing on any sort of um, levy to their customers. Um, is this an? Is, do you th- do you guys think that this is an accurate criticism? Is this just a, to some sort of populist ploy to, um, just give the banks a bit of a bash without actually having any sort of, uh, effect? Um, yeah, th- like I think you've really hit the nail on the head there. You know, taxing the big four banks. Um, all that's really going to do is is cause them to pass those those costs on to consumers. They've they've simply got the, you know, the market power. They you know, there's not really much we can do uh, um, to to sort of get around that. If 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 
their costs are going up, our costs are going to go up. Um, and it's it's actually interesting on this point. I'm actually looking at the Commonwealth Bank budget breakdown, and yep. they're very tight lipped about the about the bank levy. No, not really much commentary there, which is quite interesting. Who would have thought it? That who, is very it? interesting exactly. indeed. Probably probably because they know they're going to pass costs on to consumers. Yeah, you'd think so. It, it, it is also interesting. This is more of an aside than a- anything else. That um, former Premier of Queensland Anna Anna Bly, I've noticed, in is actually a, a um, senior. Uh, um, lobbyist for banks now as a head of one of Australia's leading financial interest groups, which is, I suppose, an interesting commentary on how on where ex ex politicians end up going after after their careers just like commonly referred to as a revolving door of politician mm. to lobbyist and the like, which some. Um, well, I suppose certainly. they've lost their lifetime benefits now. So oh yes. Need to find something else. Good point, Katie. I was um, yeah, we nearly missed that. Also, if we're going to be talking about acts of cheap populism, uh, MPs will not be getting their life gold gold passes anymore. Which um, I think uh, Senator Ian McFarlane was furious about this. I recall a few weeks back, he was saying he was you know. Senators and MPs work hard and and the like, and they yep. deserve these. Do you benefits. know? Do you know how old um, Senator McFarlane was? It McFarlane? M- uh, McFarlane. I can well. Uh, do, do you know how old old mate Ian is anyway? Old mate I, Ian. I do not <laughs> got know. A, got a terrible suspicion about about his age when he's making these comments. He is sixty-two. Mm, I think I think he's he's been he might have grown a bit used to having those those benefits. Is is sort of all I'm positing here. Yeah, very interesting. It's um, I th- although it's all it's it is interesting. Politicians seem to have this knack of knowing that they are a group that are very easy to bash and get a few points out of. It's interesting. Um, also in other matters, foreign aid continues to be a target of the government. This is um continuing a um bipartisan trend. It's gone back for quite some years now where foreign aid faces consistent funding cuts and freezes. In this case, it's not going to go up in real terms over, over, over the next two years, which, which, effect, which essentially means that it'll be $300 million less going towards foreign aid than otherwise would. Now, there are. it's worth pointing out here, foreign, foreign policy um, in many ways sees foreign aid as a very important part of how Australia runs its foreign, foreign policy. It's um, a big part of how Australia exercises soft power overseas, helping nations in the region. Um, aside from, obviously, the um, issues of inequality that arise from Australia providing less money for those, arguably, who need it the most... Um, I'm I'm always struck by how whenever whenever this issue is polled consistently time after time, Australians and those in other other countries as well they not only do they consistently overstate how much money is spent on foreign aid, but generally speaking they are very happy to see it cut. Now is that just plain old human human selfishness at work? Do we think? Um, I think it's it's um you know the issues being not tangible enough um, is part of the issue there. Um, And also, uh, you know, when it's a a little bit of is human selfishness. So if it's, you know, cutting foreign aid or cutting tertiary education fees, I don't know which one uh, we would choose here. Um, It'd be quite a debate on university grounds. Um, But I I do think that it is a shame because there is a lot more work to be done um, in terms of foreign aid. And if it's spent um, well and in places that 
uh, provide community-based solutions, um, then it's, it's very helpful and changes a lot of lives. Yeah, I suppose what you might be getting at there, Yael, in regards to how it's spent, there there often is uh, criticism of the way that foreign aid is distributed by governments or in, or indeed by um, private charities in terms of its very top-down kind of approach. Um, obviously, there are a lot, a lot of in, uh, initiatives going on in, in, in this area, things like microloans, funding via mobile phones in particularly poor parts of um, Africa, and of course, private private charity like the Gates Foundation, for instance, and others play extremely important roles in alleviating uh, poverty overseas via aid, which I suppose raises the question of, do we think that, is this truly as calamitous and as... Um, as bad as we think it is, or is it fair to say that the, pri- the, pri- the private sector, for lack of a better term, might pick up a bit of the uh, slack here? Um, I think that um, what the reality is that most countries haven't met the foreign aid um, uh, goal set yeah, by the right. UN. 0.7% of GDP? Of GDP, yes. So Australia is very, very far down that list. Um, and is not nearly at the top of the states that are close to it. Not that many are. Um, and I think cutting it, you know, it's it's okay to expect that of Australia and um, and of uh, most other countries. Um, and uh, we are very close to doing a lot of uh, wonderful things in the world, like uh, um, getting rid of uh, polio um, in the same way that we got rid of smallpox. Um, and I think... Uh, and you know, reducing child mortality, all of those things that are very important. And um, there are obviously problems here in Australia as well. Um, and they're not, they're not less important, but it is okay to make sure that we, as a global community, approach these problems too. Michael, did you have any thoughts to add there before we move on? Yeah, just a couple. Um, you honestly, like you preempted most of my most of my little mm-hmm. points there. Um, but uh, I think a really big one is sort of this question of uh, effective altruism, as it's known. Oh yes, um, Yeah, exactly. Um, well, amongst others, it's quite it's a bit of a bit of a growing movement. Um, so you know, not all charities are created equal, and and you know, spending one million more dollars in our budget, for instance, you know, on on. Um, uh, on overseas aid isn't necessarily a good thing. It, it entirely depends on where that money is going. Um, uh, for, for instance, you know, at home, so like, you know, for individual people, um, one of the most effective things you can do is to, just to become a hedge fund manager and then just donate a lot of your salary. That's significantly more effective than going and, and working directly in the soup kitchen. Um, and so, and that principle really scales up, at least to some extent. Um, so, you know, where where the money is going is is often more important than how much um, how much is going there. Um, I agree with that. Uh, I I do think that how we spend the money is supremely important. Um, and um, I think one of the things that we have to do is relinquish control over. Um, you know, directly influencing uh, specifically how that is spent. So deciding this will go to funding, um, uh, buying condoms for this community specifically. Um, I think it's more important, as I was saying before, to to fund community-based work. Um, and I guess that can be a different episode about uh, foreign aid, but because um, uh, we could keep talking for a while. But um, funding uh, foreign aid, uh, as you were saying, uh, 
you know, we, we should, it, it should go to effective uh, means of promoting it. And there are obviously very detrimental ways to uh, fund foreign aid um, um, that are conditional on uh, so many uh, various policies that we've seen in the past that didn't really go down so well. Yep. Um, and um, yeah, I think it's a shame uh, seeing that uh, foreign aid has already suffered so much. Right. Um, obviously, something else that, um, as young people, is particularly important for us. Uh, climate change uh, was barely mentioned in the Treasurer's speech. There wasn't uh, any big-ticket announcements with regard to climate change or the environment. There's a slight increase in funding for new emissions te- technology, but aside from that, there wasn't too much. I- is this something you think is quite disappointing from the from the perspective of uh, young people who are likely to grow up into a world that is going to be affected in some way shape or form by climate uh, climate change uh well as an australian i suppose like yes australia is very big but this is an island nation and you know there's always that there's always that joke like what if australia one day is just under the sea right um i feel like as a young person it was quite disappointing to see that there was like there was one line quick gloss over new emissions technology, some amount of money is being increased to it, but there was no other real mention of climate change. And I think that like the government probably isn't trying to think about this as much as, you know, big ticket items were universities, infrastructure, welfare. Um, I also think, uh, you know, we're in 2017 to, this is the year, uh, with the 2%, uh, Two percent increase, two percent, two degree. Two degrees, in, there yes. we go. Two degree increase in um, uh, temperature um, that was predicted. Uh, like this is the year it's going to be locked in. Um, while I wasn't expecting a revolutionary climate change policy from this government, um, uh, and uh, it is a shame to see that really almost nothing is being done, um, and uh, or at least it feels that way. Um, and it's it's. Uh, kind of scary because we're not treating it as the imminent threat which it is of course there is um, there are questions to, to be raised about what australia can do to el- to alleviate the um the coming of climate change given that we are not by global standards at least when you compare to the to china or to the united states australia is not going to solve this problem on its own but what i think maybe is a matter of also concern is that there appears to be little uh, and this and this isn't just a, a budget issue but the notion of adaptation to climate change does not appear to be take, taken seriously at least in this budget and generally government government policy and i think putting aside for a second the notion that australia ought to be a leader in climate change alleviation i think adaptation is also a big issue here um just in terms of what Australia could do, yes. um, Australia exports a lot of coal. Um, and while it's not the number one exporter of coal in the world, it is definitely in the top three. And it is, um, and that's a huge, you, you know, that, that means that we supply uh, this, you know, uh, dirty energy to, uh, for, for, for the world. And, um, uh, you know, you can internalize that cost. Um, and there's a conversation article on this um, that discusses exactly... We'll put it in the show, in the show notes. Um, um, and, it's, uh, and, it, and it discusses how uh, attacks on uh, coal exports could actually raise a lot of money, which could be replaced into, um, um, into renewable energy sources, which Australia could be a leading exporter yep. of renewable energy. Oh, yes. Um, and, you know, so maintain its status as an energy exporter. Um, but you, 
you know, um, that is a, a viable pathway for Australia, but uh, it doesn't seem to be heading in that direction. Michael, any thoughts there? It is a viable pathway. It's also a very difficult pathway. Um, it, it would require an incredible transition within our economy. But uh, frankly, that's an, a transition that we're going to have to make sooner yeah. rather than later as well. You know, the mining boom is, is it's settled down. Um, I, I don't think it's dying per se, but it has settled down into sort of just like digging coal out of the earth. So we're going to need to see a transition in the next short while anyway, you know, adaptation on a, in a great variety of ways. And I think that's actually a really interesting idea, Sam. Um, I think adaptation rarely does get mentioned, but is probably, especially at this point, it might be a bit, bit little too late. So I think adaptation is probably something that we should be talking a lot more about. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, uh, well, I really hope that you have all 